1: As we look back on the life of Queen Elizabeth II, how will her reign be remembered? To discuss the Second Elizabethan Age, I'm joined by the historian and author Simon Heffer. Thank you so much, Simon, for joining us. Not at all. Why has the death of the Queen caused such a reaction in so many?
0: Because she's always been there. You've got to be 75 to remember a time when she wasn't Queen. And she was also an exceptionally good Queen, she set an example to us and indeed to the whole world because she never put a foot wrong. And yes, she was criticised from time to time. People didn't like the way that the royal family back in the 50s was still quite stuffy. It didn't like the way that uh, it uh, reacted when the Princess of Wales was killed in 1997. But leaving minor incidents, and, you know, in 70 years bad things are going to happen from time to time, Aside. The world looked at her and thought, you know, she is a very honest, decent, capable, proper head of state. And it's why, if you look round, republics that seem to have no time for monarchy, the Americans call her the Queen, as if she's theirs. The French call her La Reine, as if she's theirs. The Germans call her Die Königin, as if she's theirs. Of course, you know, she's largely German, so or was largely German, so I suppose that was quite fair but they all saw in her something they didn't see in elected politicians. And I think it's no coincidence that in the last two or three years of her reign, there was a government in this country that was led by somebody pretty controversial who was painted by the opposition and by large parts of the press as being a liar. And I think that people contrasted the straightforwardness and decency of the Queen with what they were seeing coming out of Whitehall and Westminster and it was really quite wonderful for us to have as a symbol of our country somebody other than an elected politician with all the problems that elected politicians are uh, vulnerable to. When she died people suddenly realized just what a titanic moral figure she was, and how very good she was as a representative of what we like to believe are the values of our country.
1: The values of our country is an interesting phrase because we've seen statements from all over the world, from Pyongyang to Paris, from Beijing to Berlin, from Kiev, even from the Kremlin. How has she managed to unite a sort of universal morality across the world in her death? Everybody, I
0: think, who runs a state, even someone as wicked as Vladimir Putin, likes to pretend that they have their own moral compass. And so by associating yourself with the late queen, you make a pretense, and in some cases it's not a pretense, in some cases it is true, but not in Putin's case, you make a pretense that you are in the same club, that you two are a moral upright human being. I mean you know she was an absolute model of correct statesmanlike behavior and that involved never making a public fuss about anything never really expressing an opinion but at all times doing her duty. And politicians love to be thought to be doing their duty. They call it delivering which always makes you think of a postman. But with the Queen, the Queen didn't deliver. She did her duty. And it was that example, I think, that every statesman and woman around the world would like to be associated with and would like to emulate. Many of them will never, of course, get within a million miles of it. But it still meant that she that they could virtue signal, to use a modern phrase, they could virtue signal by saying you know, we admired the late Queen and... we, we understand what a great contribution to the life of her nation the late Queen made.
1: I want to talk both about the Queen herself, but also about the reign and the age that she lived in, the last 70 years since 1952. And I'm going to quote from Winston Churchill, her first Prime Minister, just after the death of her father, and he says, Now that we have the second Queen Elizabeth, our thoughts are carried back nearly 400 years to the magnificent figure who presided over, and in many ways embodied and inspired, the grandeur and genius of the Elizabethan age. Now that first Queen Elizabeth, that age is seen as a sort of golden age. Can we describe the second Elizabethan age as a golden age?
0: I think we had a, a golden age of monarchy. Whether we had a golden age of our country, I don't know. I was born in 1960, so the Queen had been on the throne for eight years. And so she's been there for all my life. And I remember the 1960s and 70s and most of the beginning of the 1980s as being a pretty grim time for this country. We were economically underperforming. We seem to have low standards in everything. I mean, you, know, you go around England now and a lot of the buildings that were put up in the 60s and 70s, which were only 50 or 60 years old, are being pulled down because they were cheap and nasty and they were designed for animals rather than human beings to live in and they soiled the landscape of our towns. And no one is ever going to look back on the Elizabethan age as being one of, shall we say, great public art, <laughs> for, that, for that reason, in the way that we look back at great Elizabethan buildings or Tudor buildings and say, gosh, weren't they marvellous and isn't it great they're still here. I think that things changed a little bit when Mrs Thatcher became Prime Minister. She understood that this country had been going down the wrong road for a long time. And that we were economically underperforming. And by the end of the 1980s, that had changed. But we seemed to be a country, and this was no fault of the late Queens, we seemed to be a country that was lacking in self-confidence for most of those years. And it goes back to the old Dean Acheson line about you know, Britain having lost an empire and not found a role. And we tried to find a role in the European Union to which we were utterly unsuited because we don't have a history that's remotely like any country in the European Union. And we have different values. Again, we have different ideas. We have different constitutional traditions here. And it was always going to be difficult for us to sublimate our sovereignty to some extra-national body or supranational body. So I don't know that it will be looked back as a golden age, but it will be looked back upon as an age in which we were incredibly fortunate when everything else was going wrong, to have as our sovereign somebody who attracted, for all the right reasons, great international attention. And one thinks back to all the great pageants, the various jubilees, royal weddings, so on and so forth, even the funeral of the late Queen Elizabeth, Queen Mother, and people saying around the world, gosh, you know, they really do it properly in Britain. The Queen's funeral... Is, I think you know, it's going to be that sort of moment where everybody says, you know, we, we might be on the rocks, we might be unable to pay our electricity bills, uh, the National Health Service might be falling down, our education system may be a joke, but actually we are a great historical people. We are an old country and we have great traditions and we know how to do things properly and to attract the envy of the world. It's the sense of anticlimax that's going to follow that that I'm already getting quite worried about. I'm not, that's, I mean, no disrespect to the King, who I think is going to be a hundred times better than his critics say that they think he's going to be. And again, it would be no fault of his, but I think politically and economically we are in a real mess. And uh, I don't quite know how we're going to get out of it. But there were real messes all the way through the last 70 years. And it didn't affect the reputation of the Queen, not least because she studiously and absolutely, devotedly kept out of politics.
1: The last 70 years has been a time of monumental change, and I want to bring viewers back to 1952. Now, I appreciate that you weren't born there eight years after. Yes, not uh, quite, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But your parents were around, and your family were around, and I just want you to give viewers an idea of what life was like in Britain during the post-war years, Can you talk about our values, our traditions, what did Britain look like, our economics, everything else?
0: Well, Britain was still full of bomb sites in 1952 because we hadn't had the money properly to rebuild the country after the Second World War. They were still rationing of certain things in 1952. And there was that sense still of us all being in it together, to coin a phrase. But that wasn't least because so many people had been involved in the corporate and collective enterprise of defeating Hitler. Men and women had been in the armed forces. Civilians had been at home undergoing serious privations, not just rationing uh, and not just limitations on their movement, but also bombs raining down on them and rockets at the end of the war raining down on them and and trying, sadly, in many cases, succeeding in killing them. So there'd been a common, a really binding common experience in 1952. We were also a monocultural society. I mean, the SS Windrush had arrived, I think, in 1948. There were very few black people in this country in 1952, very few people from the Indian subcontinent in this country in 1952. And so the demography looked different. London particularly looked different. I mean, London is a truly international city now. If you'd walked around London in 1952, first of all, everybody more or less would have been white with one or two exceptions. They'd have been quite, not shabbily dressed, but plainly dressed. Every man would be in a sort of raincoat and a trilby, and women would be in quite cobbled together clothes usually because there wasn't a lot of money around. But everybody had... There was was a great self-respect about how you looked when you went out in those days, which I don't think is necessarily the case now. And, of course, there was smog. That's the other great thing about the 1950s. The Clean Air Act came in 1956, but if you went round London any time really from October onwards until probably the next following March, not only would, would it would it be foggy, but it would be there'd be pollution everywhere from coal fires, and that made everything dirty. Buildings were dirty, so it looked very different. But the countryside was very different. There weren't horrible 1960s housing estates everywhere. I mean, there there, there had been council housing developments in villages, really from the 1930s onwards. But most villages. Remained small and unblemished by, if you like, the uh, any sign of the late twentieth century. You know, it was it was still an old country, and it looked like an old country, and it looked like a homogenous country. And those are the great changes of those of the seventy years that she was that
1: she was queen. Let's talk about some of the values of those people who were around then. And I think anyone can look to their grandparents, for example. I know, you know, my grandparents, they were together for 60 years married. And this is something that seems almost rare now to have that same kind of, that bond that goes on for a long time. And it was, you know, that was part of their set of values as Christians. So can you talk again about that contrast of values between now and back in the 1950s?
0: Yes, I mean, you talk about Christians, and yes, of course, probably more people, there was a higher attendance at church of all Christian denominations in those days, and we say we were largely a Christian country. But secularism had already taken hold on this country by the 1950s. It was a country that had a very clear idea of the difference between right and wrong. You could still be hanged for murder. Everybody thinks everybody who murdered got hanged in those days. Not true. About 10% of people who were convicted were hanged. But they hanged people who had just gone out and committed cold-blooded murder. And it's sent a signal right the way through society that there were things that we as a country took very seriously this is before any of the permissive society the 1960s liberal reforms of roy jenkins are even thought of people divorce was something that carried a huge stigma in those days i mean i can remember being at school in the late 60s early 70s And children in my class, one or two children, their parents were not married to each other or no longer married to each other. And they were viewed with sort of of, of some strangeness. You know, what's happened? This is very unusual. There were social conventions. Uh, I mean, don't forget, in 1955, the Queen refused her sister permission to marry a divorced RAF officer, Peter Townsend, which appears to have broken... Princess Margaret's heart, and um, she was never really the same again. You know, divorcees were not welcome at court. Anthony Eden, who became the Queen's Prime Minister in 1955, had been divorced and was married to uh, a woman who was Winston Churchill's niece and was not divorced, but it was his second marriage. And eyebrows were raised at court by some of the old guard there, saying, oh, you know, does the Queen have to meet someone? As if he had some sort of contagious disease. So it was a very different society and you know it, people believed very much that there was uh, to coin a phrase a network of obligation between people between individuals that we would all behave in a certain way which even if we were no longer communicating Christians came more or less straight from the New Testament
1: there was that a macro level at the nation but also within local communities there was the sense of loyalty and these really strong bonds between each other. And much has been written about the Queen since her death about her values. They talk about duty and honour and loyalty and family and tradition. Do you think that she maintained and embodied those same values throughout her life?
0: I think the Queen's view of how to be Queen was identical when she died from the way it was on the 6th of February 1952 when she became Queen. And she saw that as the deeply patriotic need to put her people first. And if that meant her doing endless, tedious engagements, which any of the rest of us would have found tedious, I'm not saying she would, opening hospitals, opening schools, going around the country, shaking hands, just being a presence. What she was doing by turning up was saying, you locally here are embodying a sense of community. I am saluting your values and I share your values about that sense of community. She was the patron of so many charities, as all members of the royal family are, and it was all about encouraging selflessness, voluntarism, going in and uh, and, and running things that the state doesn't run, and just giving everybody else a helping hand. And her ubiquity when she was younger in turning up and doing so many events, such as I've described, was really to indicate that she endorsed entirely that sense of duty and shared it and that she welcomed others and embraced others metaphorically who showed a sense of duty to the extent that she did
1: herself. Charles Moore wrote a fantastic piece for The Telegraph recently in which he talked about these values that you've just mentioned and he asked the question, if we love the Queen so much, why did we forget those same values that she embodied? changing from the 1950s, those set of values, to the values of today, which is very, very different. So why did Britain forget those same values the Queen supposedly embodied?
0: I don't know that Britain has forgotten it. I think that, depending on what age you are and what your background is, you either will or will not share those values. I'm 62. I imagine that my world view is very different from yours, because you're probably 30-odd years younger than me. And that I would expect that to be the case. My children, who are roughly your age, have a very different view of life and culture from the one that I have. And that's only to be expected. You can't expect everybody uniformly to feel the same thing irrespective of their age and generation. And I think quite a lot of people of my generation have stuck to, and perhaps as we get older we stick even more to, the views that the Queen had because we recognise how right they were and how beneficial to society they were. And there may be younger people now who entirely ignore the code by which the Queen lived. I mean, one thinks for some reason of her granddaughter-in-law, Meghan Markle, who like making an exhibition of themselves, who like displaying self-pity in public, who like going off the deep end at the slightest provocation. These people are not widely admired for doing that. and. I think one thing the Queen's death will do will be to present a very forceful reminder to a lot of people that not behaving well is not something to be admired. And yes, the the Queen was probably, to use another phrase, more socially conservative than most people are in this country now. But there are still people who are socially conservative. And of course, no one ever claimed that society wasn't a hypocrisy. There are many people who rather love the way the Queen did things, but say, well, actually, I didn't need to do them in that way because my circumstances are different. And you know, it would be a strange world if we all did the same things. But I don't share Charles Moore's contention that we have abandoned the example of the Queen and her ideas. Some people have, I think some people haven't.
1: The Queen represents for many people a great link to the past. And there's two issues I want to mention on that. First is the Second World War, and the second is the Empire. So let's, let's start with the Second World War. Does the Queen represent the severing of our ties with that war. Is Britain over that war now?
0: I don't think Britain will ever be over the Second World War. And although the Queen was a very important incarnation of the war, and indeed at the time she died, she was the leading living incarnation of that war. The effect that that war had on our society lives on and will exceed her. You know, when television channels now our show endless old war films, people still watch them those wonderful films from the 50s, like The Cruel Sea or Carve Her Name With Pride. And they're popular now for the same reason they were in the 50s. You know, in the 50s, we were going through a slight crisis, one of the many crises of confidence that we suffered during her reign, because we saw the people we had defeated doing really rather well. And we, exhausted by winning two world wars with the help of our allies, I think sat back and took a deep breath and thought, well, we'll just let, you know, everybody else get on with it. And we realised we were behind. And so nothing cheered us up more than going to the pictures and seeing Jack Hawkins or Virginia McKenna or Donald Sinden or Kenneth Moore or any of those people who played great figures in the Second World War, you know, smacking Hitler on the nose. There's that wonderful scene in Carve Her Name with Pride where a German officer who's just captured Virginia McKenna working for SOE in France. And she's put up a hell of a fight. she's machine gunned a large number of Nazis. And he offers her a cigarette as a sign of respect for her and she spits it out on the ground. And you can imagine people, I mean I remember my mother saying, it's not about that scene, but people cheering in cinemas where they saw the Germans getting what was coming to them. Because this had, as Churchill said, been our finest hour. And, of course, when things are going badly, we all like to think of our better selves. And we've never probably been better than we were in the two world wars in this country's history. And, yes, the Queen embodied that because she was of that blitz generation. She understood that hardship came on a plate almost daily, whether it was bereavement, destruction, damage loss of some sort or another and they just got on with it and she took it, they said Britain can take it and she was one of the people who took it. And we look back on that and of course she gave us a very forceful reminder of it two years ago on the anniversary, the 75th anniversary of VE Day, during the COVID pandemic when she said we'll meet again. And everybody really from about the age of 20 upwards understood the reference. And the Second World War has sunk into our culture. It's in our DNA. It's in our mainstream. It's about something that we did that was so absolutely right, it can never be again said. You know, We took the fight to Hitler, and with the help of our allies, we defeated him. We were on the right side morally. We are on the right side of history. And it was that quite... Justified sense of self satisfaction, not that she was ever self satisfied, that the late Queen really embodied. And it's why she was so important as a figurehead of that generation and an inspiration to younger people by being a constant reminder of what, you know, when things were going badly wrong, was coming up. And, you know, I regret her death for so many reasons, but it would have been rather wonderful had she lived through the coming winter and gone on television at some stage when the lights are going out, and saying, look, I know the lights are going out, but we're defeating Putin, we are defeating aggression, we're defeating somebody who thinks it's perfectly all right to walk into somebody else's country and start killing people. And that was her sort of example. I'm sure the king, if it comes to it, will do the same,
1: uh, because I don't doubt for a moment that he entirely shares that view. One of the outcomes of the Second World War was the loss of our empire. A few hours after the Queen's death, the New York Times posted an opinion piece, which has been much quoted. I'm going to quote a line from it. The Queen helped obscure a bloody history of decolonisation whose proportions and legacies have yet to be adequately acknowledged. Is that the true legacy of the Queen?
0: I read that piece and I thought it was uh, a piece that suggested the writers were mentally ill, to be honest with you, and this mania to associate... The current generation of people in this country, whether it was the late Queen or anybody else, with what went on in the British Empire is nonsense. I mean, the New York Times needs to think about the iniquitous legacy of slavery, which is far worse in America than it's ever going to be here. You know, it's a sort of here, it's a sort of entertainment for leftists. They like to find statues to chuck in rivers or they like to try and dismantle memorials because they want effectively to show solidarity with the suffering of black people in America, which was considerable. And yes, we were involved in the slave trade a long time ago. We also abolished it. We we abolished it in 1807 in Britain, which was nearly 60 years before the Americans got round to it. And no black person in this country was ever denied the vote because of the colour of his skin. In America, it took until 1965 to give equal civil rights to black people. So I don't want to take lectures from the Americans on our history and how to run our country when they have such a disgraceful legacy, which is still poisoning their country to this day. Of course, the Queen didn't conceal anything. You know, I think one of the great things the Queen did, and it's, it's not about relations with black people, but it's about our empire, if you like, our colonial past, was in 2011 going to Dublin and apologizing for some of the really stupid things we did as you know, the country that controlled Ireland. And she understands that we made some grave mistakes in Ireland. And we should have given the Irish home rule back in the 19th century. You know, we treated them like naughty children, which was stupid of us uh, in the extreme. Uh, I've written books on this. I mean, uh, I'm not saying anything that's particularly new. But we were despicable to the Irish. And it should not have happened. And yes, there were other elements of the empire that were deeply regrettable and there were people who went around the world treating other races as inferior. We wouldn't do it now. We have apologized for doing it then. I would also point out, although this is deeply unfashionable, that there are some great legacies all around the world from British rule. One of the most successful businesses in India is IPL cricket. Who took cricket to India? We did. I'm delighted that they made such a success of it. They're better at it than we are. And I'm absolutely delighted that there are people in India making so much money out of it. I saw some idiot writing not long ago that both golf and cricket were exploitative games that we'd imposed on other parts of the British Empire. Well, I imagine if you go and find the average Indian who's a shareholder in the IPL, he or she will say, well, they're really grateful for you bringing cricket here. uh, It may sound a trivial point, but it's not. I mean, It's now a a multi-billion dollar industry in in India. And of course, you know, to a minor point. We took... Westminster-style institutions around the world. And people think of the iniquity of apartheid. That was not a legacy imposed upon South Africa by people of British descent. That was Boers from the Dutch who did that. Uh, Dr Fervert and uh, Mr Forster were not of English descent. So let's just be a little bit more precise and thoughtful about all this. The Queen was brilliant at harnessing the Commonwealth she was universally respected in the Commonwealth. Nations that weren't even former British colonies like Rwanda queued up to get in the Commonwealth. So if we are so iniquitous and if we have been so abominable and wicked to people of colour around the world by having an empire, why was she so popular? Why was the Commonwealth so popular that a country like Rwanda wants to be part of it? It's because we have paid our debts. We made these countries independent as as swiftly as we could after the war. We realised that imperial phase was over. It's also a fallacy that everybody in Britain was an imperialist at the time we had an empire. And people like Gladstone was, was very much dubious about the British Empire and thought we should not be doing anything of the sort. There were liberal imperialists, but they were very few in number. And, of course, ever since we've had a Labour Party it was uh, very much in favor of dismantling the empire. And the loss of India, which began the end of the British empire, was something that had been discussed right back to the end of the Great War, the montague chelmsford reforms. And there had been attempts right throughout the 20s and 30s to give more self-government to India. And it was a political balance that had to be struck here again The Conservative Party, which had dug its heels in about Ireland very stupidly, very stupidly dug its heels in about India. You know, Churchill famously described Gandhi as a semi-naked fakir. Now, when you're dealing with that sort of mentality in the Conservative Party in the 1930s, being able to dismantle an empire is, is extremely difficult. And again, if the empire, as it then was turning into a commonwealth, was so unhappy... Why did so many people from all over the empire, including people of colour, come and fight for us against the Japanese and against the Germans in the Second World War? Because they knew that whatever else we had done wrong, and I'm not remotely denying we did things wrong, whatever else we had done wrong, we did have basic values that were superior to those of the Nazis and of uh, the Japanese that we were fighting.
1: Of course, this decolonisation was an immense task when the Queen came to the throne, Britain still had an empire, and in the early years, particularly in the 50s, 60s, 70s, that was when the empire was dismantled. And of course there were mistakes during that decolonization, but overall it was generally peaceful. If, you, if one reads Julian Jackson's brilliant book on de Gaulle, you can look at a different example of decolonization oh, yeah. of France and Algeria. Can you talk about how the Queen and Britain handled that dismantling of the empire?
0: Well the really grotesque mistake that was made was before the Queen became Queen and that was the independence of India and the partition of India with tremendous intercommunal violence with millions of people dying and that was abominable and that was frankly the fault of Attlee and Mountbatten. Attlee was the Prime Minister, Mountbatten was the uh, Viceroy and they should have taken longer to give India independence It was announced in February '47, and it happened six months later. And it wasn't enough time, because we had to reconcile Hindus with Muslims before partition took place. And I'm not saying all the carnage could have been avoided, but quite a lot of it could have been avoided. And these are people who, even if we'd had nothing to do with India, would probably have been fighting each other. But that's not not an excuse. So that was appalling. There were one or two other excrescences. There was the massacre at Hola Camp in Kenya in 19. Fifty-nine, where the supposedly serious racist Enoch Powell got up in the House of Commons and humiliated the Conservative government for allowing people being beaten to death, black people being beaten to death, in a detention camp in Kenya. So things did go wrong. There's no doubt about that. And there was no doubt that they went wrong because there was a cadre of people in a lot of those colonies, particularly in Africa, who just thought that black people were inherently inferior and therefore... If they had to be rough handled, then so be it, they would be, and that was unquestionably a mistake. But in most of these countries, we got out as quickly and as smoothly as we could. We handed over to uh, local elected or appointed leaders, and we did everything. Everything we could post-independence to help these people. I used to be a lobby correspondent. I would go on Commonwealth tours with prime ministers and I would see, you know, when Mrs Thatcher was prime minister, the handbag of state would be taken with her. It would be opened and checks would be brought out to give to the heads of state of our former colonies to help them with development work. And, you know, we've had a tremendous record right up to the present day of helping people in uh, former small colonies and, indeed, in, in, in India and trying to pay the debt of the past. And I agree there is a debt, and I agree we should always be conscious that we were there quite often against the will of the indigenous people. But, you know, it was a different time. As L.P. Hartley said, the past is a foreign country, and they did things differently there. And I'm not saying we emulate them, but I think the, Queen, the late Queen herself, in her work for the Commonwealth, in her determination to have a common bond of friendship with people whom we used to rule as a colonial power, did more than any other human being, frankly, on earth, to ensure that the something positive came of the legacy of empire rather than just ill will. And your point about de Gaulle is very well made. The way that the French left Algeria and indeed the way that they left French Indochina seven or eight years earlier, were, were abominable. And, you know, our colonial office, and our foreign office, made sure that that didn't happen. I think India was a shocking example to the British uh, official class of what must not be allowed to happen anywhere else. And, of course, although you didn't have the vast numbers of population and the the divisions between Muslims and Hindus. You know, in other countries, you had tribal differences. You know, Robert Mugabe, who unfortunately took over Rhodesia when it became Zimbabwe, effectively conducted a genocide against the Matabele in 1983, which, again, we should have intervened to stop and we didn't. We... We just took the view, well, okay, you know, you've know, you had your elections, you've chosen him as leader. If he wants to go and murder large numbers of people, then that's up to him. But that was pretty shocking. But again, I didn't, what we could have done about it, we were hardly going to invade Zimbabwe. But it was just regrettable that he was a, a, a very rotten apple that took over. Most of those people who took over in, in black Africa, you know, it was Idi Amin for a couple of years who was ridiculous. But most of them were people who had decent values and and wanted to make something of their countries. And in many cases, they've succeeded.
1: Of course, for most of the events during the Queen's reign, she was a bystander. She doesn't have any real power in that sense. But one of the areas where she did really focus on was the Commonwealth and her love of the Commonwealth. And that really was a legacy of her own. She can be proud of that. One of the people that you've mentioned throughout this interview and who you've written about a lot is Enoch Powell, famous Conservative politician after uh, post-World War II, and he said of the Commonwealth, he was very critical of the Commonwealth, so I'm going to quote from him. It is notoriously a dangerous thing when a country's words and deeds fall out of line with the realities of the world in which that country has to live. It is equally dangerous when the words and deeds of a country's politicians fall out of line with the real sentiments and opinions of that country's people. I believe this is what is happening in regard to the Commonwealth, do you think that that criticism is justified?
0: No, it's one of the few things I ever disagreed with him on, actually. Enoch was an absolutist and he wanted to be Viceroy of India. He served in India during the Second World War. He had the most immense regard for India and for Indians. He often said to me, well, there are several civilizations in India that are far superior to anything that we've ever seen in this country. And he learned two or three Indian languages and that was with a view to going back there one day and serving. And he was devastated when Attlee announced in February '47 that we were pulling out of India, which Atlee had to do. Of course he did. I mean, it was the, just the way it happened that was bad. But Enoch, being an absolutist, thought, well, the Commonwealth is a pretense. It's a comfort blanket that we're holding around ourselves to make it feel better that we've lost an empire because empires are quite important things. And, of course, only 30 years earlier, the Russian Empire, the German Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire had all vanished. And he knew that there was no real substitute for them. And he saw the Commonwealth, as say, basically as a pretense that we still had international power. I think the Queen proved him wrong. I think that the fact that she was this unifying figure and drew on the best Aspects of the shared history of all these countries around the world, almost all from anglophone countries, most of them understanding English law. I mean, you've still got uh, former colonies in the West Indies that use the Privy Council as a court of appeal. So, you know, we had institutions that were of value to our former colonies, and I think the Queen understood that there was a tremendous well of goodwill towards us once we had granted independence because we had worked so hard during the independence process and after it, to make sure that those countries worked. I just feel that Enoch wanted no continuation of any link with those countries because he saw it as a sense of weakness. He saw it as a pretense that we still had some influence there. In fact, we did still have some influence there. And I'm sure that the new king will do everything he can to maintain that influence that
1: his late mother had. Of course, many people from the Commonwealth and from former colonies came to Britain after the war. And as you mentioned, again, one of the greatest changes we've seen in the last 70 years is Britain becoming more diverse, ethnically diverse. And we've seen mass migration, particularly in the last 20 years, as a result of of Tony Blair's sort of allowing in many people from Eastern Europe and things like this. Do you think that this diversity has made Britain a poorer or a richer place?
0: Well, the the fact of the matter is that a large number of our public services would not function without that that, that migration. And I think it's wonderful for people to have cultural opportunities that they didn't have before, whether it's as simple as being able to eat a curry because of a legacy of India, or to go to the supermarket and find a section full of Polish goods if you want to do that. What I don't like is being told that there is any sort of compulsion to enjoy these things. I'm very happy for people to come to my country and to practice whatever culture they like provided they understand that there is a mainstream. And I mean, that includes allegiance to the sovereign. I don't like the idea of people coming here and thinking, well, I don't have to bother with that. And I hope that people who come to our country now will willingly give their allegiance to King Charles III as they did to
1: his late mother. I think it's a really interesting point you make about allegiance to the sovereign. It's sort of about whether people are able to adapt to Britain and integrate into our society. And again, I've mentioned France throughout this interview because there's an interesting contrast between how France and Britain have handled these things, handled sort of post-war collapse of their empires. And in France, they had a fantastic level of integration up until the 1980s, 1990s, where something changed and perhaps immigrants weren't particularly integrating well into France. Whereas in Britain, I think we've been mostly successful or more successful than most countries in being able to integrate millions of people from different cultures, from different backgrounds, different societies. Can you talk a bit about that integration, but also about the role the Queen has played within that?
0: Okay, I think we have been very good at integration because I think as a people we admire others who come and make a contribution to our country, who do useful jobs and pay taxes and contribute to the general sum of a, of human happiness in the country running properly. I've never thought we were a racist country. I think we're a country that doesn't like freeloaders and doesn't like people who just swing the lead. But that applies just as much to indigenous people as it does to people who, who migrate here. I would take issue with your point about France. The French, after 1965, during uh, Les Trente Glorieuses, when they were developing the country, shipped in huge quantities of migrant labour. And for the first, I think, 13 years until 1978, they were only men who were allowed to come in. They were put in effectively workers' barracks in the banlieue of Paris and other big towns. They lived in pretty grim conditions because the French, being racist as well, said, well, they're not not used to anything better, so, so what? Then eventually, a more liberal tone came through in France and said, well, we ought to perhaps allow their wives and families to come. And instead of building better accommodation for the wives and families, the workers' barracks were just sort of knocked, you know, two rooms were knocked into one and more workers' barracks were built to accommodate their families coming. They were never encouraged to go and live in nice towns in France in the way that you have. You know, now in most provincial towns in Britain, you have an ethnic minority community of very well integrated people. That's not the case in France. As you say, something went wrong. Well, I think what went wrong was bringing in the wives and children and saying actually you can still live like animals because we don't treat you that respectfully or seriously and i think the french got that really wrong we didn't and i'm sure it helped that the late queen was seen to be so interested in the commonwealth from which as you say many of these people came and was always somebody who clearly treated everybody the same who didn't make distinctions And I mean, God, when you think of some of the people that she had to give house room to it at Buckingham Palace. I always think of the Callaghan government insisting that the Ceausescu's came here for a state visit in the late 1970s, which was abominable. I mean, fancy inflicting that on the Queen. And, you know, not long ago, she had to have Donald Trump to dinner. So she's always behaved really well. And I think, again, people see her extending welcome and extending hospitality and think, well, this is, actually, this is a good thing to do. But this goes back to our values. and These are values that she embodied. We are a very decent people who are happy to have other people in our midst, providing they don't try and swamp our culture. And I think that's important. We've got to be allowed to be ourselves. We don't mind them having their own cultures, which they can practise as as, as they wish. But they, they mustn't try and overtake ours because there is a mainstream. And the Queen represented that mainstream, but also she was welcoming. She didn't differentiate. She didn't say to people, there's something wrong about you because you don't do quite the, uh, things in quite the same way that we do. You worship a different God from the way we do. You treat your women differently from the way we do. She might not have approved of it. I don't approve of it. But she said, you know, in your own homes, that's what you do. There's another example here with the French. I thought Nicolas Sarkozy, when he was interior minister about 15 years ago, was very foolish to ban the wearing of the burqa. In a, I think it's anyone working in the public sector in France is allowed to wear it. If you go to a school or you go to a hospital, you're not allowed to wear a burqa. I think that's an outrageous interference with the liberty of individuals. I don't dispute that there are many Muslim women who choose to wear a burqa because it's their idea of their modesty, and I entirely respect that. And I think it's wrong for the state to say, you will not do that. Again, you know, we wouldn't dream of saying to someone in his or her own home, you must dress in a certain way or behave in a certain way or worship in a certain way. And I think that, again, shows the difference between France and us, that we are a much more open-minded society. And, again, I think the late Queen really embodied that, that although she had her own values, and they were distinctly British values and Christian values, she respected the decencies of other people who were different from her.
1: And I think it's important to be honest about mass migration as well and the, the negative impacts it's had on Britain, many, many people voted for Brexit, voted for UKIP, voted for all these parties because they wanted to control their borders because they were unhappy with the levels of immigration into their communities. And they saw this vast change, and I don't want to skirt around that issue. And so you can mention that if you want to very briefly.
0: Well, no, let's not skirt around Brexit. I was a Brexiteer. I campaigned actively for Brexit, and did so for many years uh, before a referendum was called and before the word Brexit was invented. What worried me about immigration was not that so much the numbers that were coming in, because again, uh, they've added to the wealth of the country. It was the fact that somebody with a criminal record for rape and murder from a European country could turn up at Dover and be let into the country. If, you know, he could be the most experienced, violent, unpleasant criminal and just walk into Britain. And I think any sensible community should have the right to regulate itself. And I didn't like being told by a supranational body in Brussels whom I was and wasn't allowed to have in the country. And I think, again, when the British people see immigrants coming to this country and making a really valuable contribution, they don't mind. It's when they feel that they are being taken advantage of that they mind. And that, I think, did have a, a say in Brexit. I mean, we'll never know what the late Queen's opinions were, or maybe we will when her papers in probably 50 or 100 years' time are, are, are brought out. But I think it must have been hard for the Queen, who took a coronation oath to govern in accordance with the laws and customs of her people and found herself, after the Maastricht Treaty, having to govern in accordance with the laws and customs of the European Union. So that can't have been easy. But because she was a constitutional monarch, she didn't ever utter a word of complaint about it.
1: I want to talk about our values again. So the Queen's funeral is going to come up soon. And one of the greatest pieces of, I think, conservative writing of the last few decades is from Peter Hitchens' The Abolition of Britain. And in his first chapter, he describes the funerals of Princess Diana in 1997, and the funeral of Winston Churchill in 1965. And I'm going to quote from it. So he says, the final days of Imperial Britain are bracketed appropriately enough by the funerals of an old man and of a beautiful young woman. The first of Sir Winston Churchill reached into a past of grandeur and certainty, whilst the second of Diana, Princess of Wales, foreshadowed a future of doubt and decline. The dead warrior was almost 90, full of years and ready to die. He represented the virtues of courage, fortitude and endurance, was picturesque rather than glamorous and his death was expected. The lost princess was snatched from life in the midst of her youth, beauty and glamour. Her disputed virtues were founded on suffering, real or imagined, and appealed more to the outcasts and the wounded than the dutiful plain heart of England. Is Britain, England in perpetual decline?
0: Not necessarily, no. And I would remind, I mean, Peter Hitchens is someone I admire enormously and we're friends. I would remind Peter that four and a half years after the funeral of the late Princess of Wales came the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, Queen Mother, which was a very different matter altogether. Okay, she was 101 and she'd been expected to die. Uh, but it showed that the Diana thing was an interlude and that we were back to normal. And the Queen's funeral will show that we're back to normal. There was a climate of hysteria in this country when the Princess of Wales died that I found shaming and incomprehensible as an Englishman. I remember going... I then worked for another newspaper, and I remember going to my office in Kensington High Street two days after she died and taking ten minutes to do a, a journey on foot that normally took two, fighting my way through young women i saw this sea of children clutching flowers they didn't have a clue what they were doing it was a hysterical and i you know i don't mean this word in an entirely derogatory fashion continental way of dealing with grief it wasn't british but that was nothing to do with us having had mass immigration it was to do with having i think poorly educated people uh in many regards who made a disproportionate amount of noise for their proportion of the population And the tabloid press jumped on this, you know, papers such as the Telegraph behaved entirely responsibly. But some of the tabloid press who saw, I think, great advantages to their circulation in attacking the then Prince of Wales, our new King, and making up ridiculous stories. And, you know, being beastly to the late Queen for her quite justified refusal to come down to London. She was a grandmother, she had two bereaved children who had to be looked after, and she did that. And I thought that some of the... quite a large section of the public, actually, lost its marbles that week. And, yes, it was terrible that this woman died, and it was terrible that those children were bereaved. But, you know, the royal family, as Badgett said, is a great advantage in having a family on the throne because everybody can understand what goes on in families. And, you know, by 1997 most people had families in which there had been divorces there had been acrimonious marital breakups there had been children who had been you know put into custody of one parent or another and life was very difficult of course the difference with the, the princess of wales was it was all being played out in public she was behaving you know in a rather ridiculous way running around with a coke snorting playboy in paris which is really you know, she might have thought about it a bit However badly she felt she'd been treated, however much of a victim she thought she was, she was still the mother of a future king and perhaps should have considered his sensibilities in the way that she was behaving. And sadly, too many people in this country took everything at her estimation of what had gone on. I'm just so delighted that since he remarried in 2005, our king has rebuilt his public estimation. I thought that the address that he made to the nation the day after the late queen died was one of the greatest speeches I've seen in in modern times. Absolutely brilliant in every respect. And a lot of people around this country who'd had doubts about him, who were feeling nervous about the future, would have said, gosh, you know, he actually, he, he's got it, he knows what he has to do. Of course he doubts because he's had a brilliant apprenticeship from his mother. So are we in perpetual decline? No, we're not. But it's, again, it's not up to the royal family. The king is a figurehead and will continue to be a figurehead and he will stand up for certain causes within the bounds of what a constitutional monarch can do. But it's up, to the, it's up, first of all, to the politicians to create a climate in which decline doesn't necessarily have to happen. And in the end, it's up to all of us to pull our fingers out, as the late queen's uh, husband once famously said, to pull our fingers out and get on with working hard and trying to rebuild this country. At the moment... You know, the Queen has died at a, at a very difficult time for the country, made far worse by her death, of course, because of our correct and principled opposition to Putin and the effect that's having on the economy and particularly on energy prices. But that won't last. It will come to an end. Putin will be defeated. And when he is defeated, even if it means we have to sit in the dark for three nights a week every winter, uh, for the next couple of two or three years. I'm prepared to do that, frankly. And if it means that we don't allow this sort of aggression to go, once that's over, then we move on. And we all have to work hard.
1: I want to take viewers back to that, the days after Princess Diana died, because this comes up from discussing the Queen's life. People talk about this being one of her rare mistakes, that she allegedly misjudged the mood of the nation. And this is, you know, if you're not the New York Times, this is probably one of the only things you're going to mention as, as, you know, as one of her mistakes. So you say that wasn't a mistake. Do you think she was unfairly sort of hounded by the press and by the public even to make this, this statement?
0: I thought elements of the press behaved abominably. I really did. And I felt that, as I said, a lot of people in the general public, partly taking their lead from some of those newspapers, lost their marbles. It was it was almost as if it was a welcome opportunity to let some hysteria out, that people had bottled things up for years and thought, oh good, we can make a real exhibition of ourselves. And it was awful because I have never in all my life seen the country lose its nerve in the way that it did. I think the Queen did exactly the right thing that week, and I said so at the time, this is not hindsight. She should have stayed in Balmoral for as long as was necessary and then done what she did and came down for the funeral. Don't forget, although the late Princess of Wales was the mother of her two of her grandchildren, she was also no longer a member of the family. She had they got divorced. She was out on her own. And I suspect the Queen thought, well, you know, I'll do what I can for my grandchildren, but as to my ex-daughter in law, while I you know I regret that she's dead, there's not much I can do about it. And I can just imagine the Queen feeling, well, you know, I'm not going to come down and emote uh, because that's what people want me to do. She, She would have to lower herself to the level of some of her more unhinged subjects to do that, which would have been fatal for her. And I remember the address she gave on television and it was very dignified, very straightforward. Was it the right thing to do? I'm not entirely sure to this day it was the right thing to do. I think it would have been much better for her just to say or to put out a statement to the public saying how deeply she regretted the death of her daughter-in-law and that she was doing everything she could to console her grandchildren and move on from there. But, you know, it, I, I can remember people at the time saying, oh, this is the end of the monarchy. Well, it jolly well wasn't, and it won't be, and the monarchy is still going from strength to strength, and there's a clear line of succession. I don't think that they did any lasting damage at all. And, you know, this really insulting decision that was taken when the Prince of Wales got married in 2005, that his wife would not share his rank... Uh, because it would upset people for there to be another Princess of Wales in that generation. I'm very glad the Queen herself recognised the, the badness of that and at the start of this year said that when the present King succeeded his wife would be Queen Consort. So she should be because life goes on and also the Queen Consort has been a magnificent Duchess of Cornwall and done a superb job for the monarchy and done a superb job for her husband. And that's what You know, really matters. And we just have to put sentimentality behind us and deal with practicalities.
1: I think there's a temptation in many people's minds to say that, well, as I said earlier, the Queen was a bystander to events. Perhaps she had an easy job. She was sort of born into wealth and, and luxury and everything else. So, you know, what she did was a relatively simple thing in a way, just to sort of not have opinions and everything else. You know, I'm sure you'll dis- you would disagree with that, and I want to uh, frame the question in the sense of comparing her to other monarchs in our past. So we've talked about Elizabeth I, obviously, but what about the more recent queen, great queen we had, in Queen Victoria? Now, you've studied the Victorian age in a big way. You've written several books about it. How would you compare those two monarchs?
0: I'm not a great fan of Queen Victoria. I think that she allowed herself to become overcome by hysteria when Prince Albert died. To the extent that in 1871, a pamphlet was published called What Does She Do With It? The it being the money that she got to be Queen. Because no one had seen her for 10 years. Gladstone tried to get her out in 1869 to open Blackfriars Bridge. And she hummed and hawed. And he said to her, and some of her courtiers said to her, look, ma'am, no one's seen you for eight years. It might be an idea if you went out and did it. And literally the day before, she said, I'm not doing it. And she was barely seen in public until... The jubilee and it was only in 1887 and it was only because the people were so deferential in those days and there was a very limited bit of radical politics going on and it also was an age of great growth and prosperity and the expansion of a middle class that she got away with it i mean if you imagine our queen had the duke of edinburgh died in what would it have be 1967 when the queen was the same age as queen victoria when albert died or 1968 And our Queen had said, right, I'm going to shut myself away until the early 1990s. She wouldn't have survived, and quite right. And I think Victoria was, I think she was petulant. She treated her prime ministers in some occasions very well, in others very badly. I mean, she was abominable to Gladstone, who was a man of the deepest sense of public service and had the deepest respect for the Queen. And... She just treated him like he was a piece of dirt. You know, she, uh, there's a l- famous letter which she writes to the Kaiserin, her, um, her daughter, uh, who was then the Crown Princess of Prussia, in which she says, you know, I've got to have this madman as my prime minister again. And Gladstone you know, was not a madman by any stretch of the imagination. But you know, she wasn't very bright. She was very poorly educated. And once her husband died, she had no one to stand up to her. And she just became you know, wildly eccentric. And I think the only reason she came up for her jubilee in 1887 was she had started to do the odd public uh, appearance. And I think she was just getting a bit bored. I thought, oh, well, the time has come. It's been, it's been 25 years. I can show my face in public again. So I think that she was, she has a reputation. I mean, she's still, a, I hate this word, she's still an iconic figure. I mean, you see representation of the Queen of Victoria all over the place. But I think that's because of the age she represents, and it was, you know, it was a great age for our country, rather than the woman herself. If you like, we've had the inverse under the Queen. We've had a really great monarch, while the country has not been performing up to its standards. And rather than conceal the wickedness of empire, as the New York Times would have it, what the Queen did was provide some sort of morale boost to people who seem to be struggling to, to keep going. I mean, look, I don't want to talk down the country We've had some fantastic successes. Our standard of living is enormously higher than it was 50 years ago when I was a child. And I don't dispute that. It's just you look at some other countries around the world and possibly we could have done better and we have let ourselves go behind. As I say, the next few months is going to be a grave test and um, it may require our new king to go on television and tell us all to keep calm and
1: carry on. What will be the great defining issue of the Elizabethan age?
0: In domestic terms... I suppose the breaking of the post-war consensus in 1979 when Thatcher came to power. Because that's when we really were in serious steep decline. The 1970s were an atrocity, uh, I mean, from beginning to end, first of all under Heath, then under Wilson and Callaghan. And I think that when Mrs Thatcher came to power and she took on the trade unions and she said, I want to give everybody a stake in the country. We had share ownership, we had people buying their houses. We came out of that sort of welfare-obsessed period that we have been in since the late 1940s. So she created a country in which people could create wealth. And, OK, a lot of people did it slightly selfishly. They didn't perhaps put back as much as they could have done because they were being lowly taxed. But that is, to me, was the watershed of the, the Queen's Reign, the most important historical event of the Queen's Reign domestically speaking obviously the end of the cold war internationally was different because you know until 1989 we were afraid that one morning we'd wake up and find a nuclear bomb was about to be dropped on us and so when that ended it 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 created if you like some sort of peace dividend which we were very bad at cashing in so i think that those domestically and internationally are the two big events of the queen's reign
1: now churchill after King George VI's death, as I mentioned earlier, he compared Queen Elizabeth's reign to the first Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. We're coming in to Charles III. Now, if we compare Charles to his predecessor, so namesake predecessors, let's hope that <laughs> nothing happens along those lines. But um, I just wanted to ask you, what are your hopes for... Charles III. I mean, th- this is sort of to finish off the interview. Can you give us something hopeful or is it sort of pessimistic?
0: I'm very hopeful about the new reign. I think he's going to be a terrific king. I'm not saying that for reasons of sycophancy. I think that he's a genuine patriot. He believes in his country. And I think he believes in the ethic of service that his late mother had. I also think that he's got interests in non-political subjects such as culture that he can bring influence to bear on i mean i've been writing stuff for the telegraph um, about this saying that you know whatever else the great accomplishments of the last queen were she didn't appear to be very interested in cultural things whereas of course the new king has been very forthright about architecture and about making this country look better and i think he will strive to make it one of his legacies that uh, it does look better Uh, I'm rather hoping he might set up something called the Demolition Commission, which I'd very much like to chair, Your Majesty, if you're watching, where people would go around looking at disgusting buildings, both domestic architecture and commercial architecture, just getting rid of it because we have allowed bits of our, particularly our cityscapes, to become horrible. And I think that he will take a very keen interest in that, but a very keen interest in culture generally. And, you know, he's shown himself to be a formidable worker for charity through his own charities. And that, I think, with probably the help of his son, he will carry on. And uh, I think he will be very good at cheering us up. But I think the great asset he has, as I've said before, is the Queen Consort. Uh, I've had the privilege of meeting her a few times. I think she is magnificent. She has been brilliant for him. And I think she she's already gone into the hearts of the, of the British people. She's so brilliant when she goes and does a public engagement. She's tremendously warm and uh, receptive to other people. And I think she's going to be the great star, other than him, of course, of, of the, the reign that is now beginning. And I think in 10 years' time, we will sit down and say how very lucky we've been to
1: have them. Let's hope so. Thank you so much, Simon Heffer, for joining us. Thank you for asking. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.